0: what what breaks my heart is when someone comes to me and is like I just always thought this was normal or no one ever told me I needed to be worried about xyz or I figured everybody else is experiencing the same thing so I never brought it up
1: Shalom from Jerusalem and welcome back to another episode of The Current Podcast. Um, Thank you for joining me. Unfortunately, I'm alone this week. REA is feeling a little under the weather, uh, so we wish him a speedy recovery. Um, But I was flying solo uh, and was joined this week by Dr. Batsheva Maslow, a reproductive endocrinologist uh, based in America. Um, We had a really, really interesting um, and meaningful discussion uh, about the intersection between fertility uh, and halakha. Um, we weren't just focused on sort of the medical side of things, we weren't just focused on the halakhic side of things, um, but I really think this is a very important conversation um, that we had, uh, and hopefully a conversation that continues off uh, as well. Uh, so please listen uh, and enjoy. If uh, you are affected by anything uh, that is said in this week's podcast, please uh, do feel free to reach out to us uh, or to Dr. Maslow. Um, we've also put uh, a list of organizations that might, be, that might offer themselves as resources um, and links to those are in the show notes. So without further ado, uh, here it is. I'm very privileged to be joined by Dr. Batsheva Maslow, who is a reproductive endocrinologist at the Reproductive Medical Associates of New Jersey, um, and is the director of medical curriculum at Nishmat uh, North American Center for Yoatzot Halacha. Thank you very much, Dr. Maslow, for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I guess uh, to sort of start our conversation off, um, just so we, everyone's on the same page. Um, what when we say reproductive medicine or reproductive endocrinology, um, what are we talking about?
0: Um, so my bread and butter of Clinical care is couples who are coming for infertility treatment or for infertility assessment. Uh, That's kind of the bulk of what I see. I also have a fair amount of patients who are single women who are coming to discuss their fertility and consider fertility preservation, an area of expertise. But generally, when we talk about reproductive medicine or reproductive endocrinology, we're talking about fertility and infertility and kind of the care of helping um,
1: women conceive. Okay, and so I think without thinking too hard, there are obvious sort of overlaps between reproductive medicine um, and issues in halacha. Um, I suppose that's where your work with Nishma also comes into play. Um, so, what are some of the first of all, I, we'll start easy, I guess. Um, and this is obviously a, a very difficult topic for a lot of people, but um, starting off fairly easy, what are some of the like the just the the, the as you said, the the, the bread and butter uh, issues that come up um, in halakha when we talk about reproductive medicine, reproductive issues.
0: Sure. I mean, certainly, let's say one step back from like my expertise in treating couples with infertility. You know, part of my expertise from a medical standpoint is really understanding the ins and outs of the menstrual cycle and how and reproductive anatomy and how that leads to conception. You know, the bread and butter for the OUSET and the kind of typical questions they get are a lot of Menstrual disturbances, menstrual anomalies, understanding the menstrual cycle. Um, and so that's really like the intersection that I uh, meet when I speak to Yoatzot and when I train the Yo-A-Tot. it has a lot to do with an understanding, um, a really good, deep understanding of the menstrual cycle. So that's sort of number one, outside of fertility per se. Um, and then number two, in the process of trying to conceive a pregnancy, there's all sorts of questions that can come up some related to, to the menstrual cycle itself and how that impacts, um, there's certainly, once you start going down the path of, um, infertility testing and treatment, there are, um, tests and procedures that can disrupt chip they can disrupt the menstrual cycle. Obviously there's, you know, questions related to sperm collection that come up. Um, there's a lot of questions that can come up. Some that are, um, Small questions and some that are big questions. And so that's that's a lot of, of the quote unquote bread and butter of, of what I see and speak about when we when I counsel and train the in the OSA program or when I get phone calls from um you know Rabbanim in all sorts of environments in and outside of the OSA program.
1: I suppose then like now going a bit deeper into that, into that intersection as you're as you're calling it, which I think is is, is a great word to be using. Um when a UET set sort of comes to you with a question about about the medicine, or what, or a patient comes to you asking you as an orthodox Jew, yourself and a patient being, uh, you know, someone who is shomer mitzvot, uh, the mitzvot, mitzvot, uh, talmid etc., um, like, what are some of the considerations in, in terms of, you know, you're you're not necessarily sort of going to say something, something is permitted or something is is not permitted yourself as the doctor, as opposed to the yoetze or a a poset halakha of of some kind but what are some of the the factors that you're uh having to consider when faced with with a lot of these issues either coming from a patient or from a yoetze or a rabbi or whoever it is what what are the some of the what's happening in your brain as a clinician um that perhaps you know our average listener uh wouldn't wouldn't be considering so
0: those are really two separate questions when i'm sitting in front of a patient who's let's say Mitzvot, who cares about the halachot related to tarim, Mishpacha. you know, in my mind, I'm thinking about, you know, as a physician, all the things that I'm going to want for that, for her or for that couple, regardless of her mitzvah preferences. Um, And, and then I'm thinking, you know, a little bit more about sort of the cultural background in which this couple is coming to me. So, you know, many of the Orthodox couples, there's a lot of you know, there's a cultural baggage that comes to getting an infertility workup and an infertility evaluation. Um, that's part of the kind of emotional process that goes through an infertility treatment. And, you know, the, the burden to some degree of making sure that they feel comfortable um, with the testing and the treatment and also the halakhic aspects of it kind of falls on the two or three of us that are talking in the room and potentially we're pulling pulling in uh, you know, a halakha advisor it's really about an awareness that this is acceptable and this is unacceptable because that's definitely not my my position nor are there many things in this area of halakha or maybe any area of halakha that are that clear cut um so but I do try to, you know, get a sense from my patients of, of what they're looking for. I tend to try to let them lead the questions and, and um, you know, ask them, you know, ask them to ask, you know, have them ask me. But, you know, if someone's clearly asking me questions about when she's using the mikvah, I'm also going to be able to alert her to say, okay, you know, this is a test that we typically do during shib This is how it might disrupt your shib I don't want it to delay your mikvah because I don't want to delay ovulation. I mean, I don't want ovulation to right. fall before the mikvah. Then we haven't a- accomplished anything, you know. So being aware of those types of things is one very helpful because it, it helps us get to our ultimate goal, and also makes the couple feel much more comfortable because they don't feel like they're working against one another. Like we're working in concert. Um, so that's, you know, even just the very first times I meet with a couple, those are the types of things that I'm thinking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the flip side, when I'm when I'm being reached out to by, from the religious aspect from a as a halakha question, then my brain is sort of working on the clinical end. Like what's behind this question? What's really causing it? What can we utilize from a medical standpoint to help this, um, you know, this woman or this couple who's experiencing a question related to Clonida? Like how can I, my medical knowledge inform that to be able to help her get to a, a good answer, a good, a good place with this question?
1: Um. So I guess another the question is as in so, okay, I'm an ignoramus. Uh, um, I'm not setting the scene. I'm, I'm <laughs> I highly doubt that. <laughs> but the, you know, uh, reproductive medicine or fertility, like fertility treatment, fertility medicine, it, as we know it today, is not that, uh, not that old of a field. It's, it's a, a fairly mm-hmm. modern uh, area of, of medicine. What's some of the the, the advances? What's some of the the, the um, development? coming out of the world of reproductive medicine that have, like, drastically changed um, our halachic thinking um, about uh, nida and about fertility and about, you know, yeah. having children. I
0: mean, so it's, it's fascinating, and, and I've done some writing and speaking on this topic in general. Um, you know, if we use the orthodox world um, engagement with IVF, as kind of a test case for how halakha interacts with modernity, it's fascinating because, like you said, it hasn't been around for very long. Generally, halakha is not what we call like an early adopter, Mm -hmm. right? Typically speaking, halakha is slow to engage with modern technology than modernity in that way, Um, except that IVF, Offers something that is extraordinarily valuable to us as as Orthodox Jews: the concept of being able to grow and build our family. Right. Um, and you know, IVF it came into development uh, in the '70s. It, you know, first started sort of experimentally in the in the '50s and '60s, but really got its its groove in the '70s, '80s, and certainly in the '90s and and, and now. Um, but it's in the wake of this sort of post-Holocaust, post shoah baby boom of wanting to populate, um, you know, have larger Jewish, many and larger Jewish families. Um, and I see that not only in like the Hasidish, Yeshivish, ultra-orthodox world, but even in those that are are, are not Shomer at mitzvot. There's a real strong desire to have large, you know, families and and potentially large families. So for those who are suffering for. Inf- from infertility, you know, in an Orthodox community, it becomes very obvious who those people are. And IVF offered an opportunity uh, to really um, change the lives of couples who otherwise might not have been able to have family or a family of the size that they would um, want. And so Halakha was really able or willing to engage in it in a way that's been essentially unprecedented. Um, and so it's really it's fascinating to see the ways in which we are um able to take you know halacha slash hashkafa around interventions medical procedures um you know identifying uh, a chain of, of of a chain of custody so that you can feel very confident that the baby that was born to this couple is in fact belongs to this couple right. um, all of those things that that are informed by the sensitivity that are important to us as orthodox Jews but we we don't look at it and say okay this is too complicated we can't take, take part in it which by the way many of the early gadolim of the, the generation in which IVF was initiated that was the, the initial response was, this is all very complicated and very murky mm-hmm. like we really shouldn't participate in and very quickly there was a lot of change because one it became less complicated and less murky and more successful and it's like well, why should everybody else be able to be successful and not us um and because there's a real motivation to participate in, in being able to build families so it, it is amazing from from a historical halachic perspective
1: right you mentioned how in in sort of uh is not an early adopter and, and in the very early days of of ivf being available to the public uh many of the gedolim were uh and the poskim Potentially, even I think across across the spectrum were hesitant. Um, although that changed quite quickly. Um, what are some of the I mean, some of those issues? I think are probably still very prevalent in, in when you meet a couple. Um, it's at the forefront of their minds. Things like identifying uh, chains of custody um, and things like that. Uh, so, what are some of the issues that you're aware of from your uh, from your day to day that people bring up when they come to you for for, for treatment? Um, from a halakhic point of view,
0: yeah, I mean the chain of custody is one that I think comes up a lot. Um, it's obviously a concern that everybody's going to have, and,
1: and, and it might, sorry, it might, yeah. it might be worthwhile as well just explaining what a chain of custody is oh, in, in this sorry. context.
0: So you know, when 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 we do IVF, we're taking the gametes, we're taking the eggs and the sperm out of the body. We have embryos that are made from those eggs and sperm in the laboratory. You know, generally we have extraordinarily rigorous. Um, protocols in place um, and so there have been organizations that have developed um, ways in which they can provide that confidence. Uh, you know, there's Mahon Pua in, in Israel and um, here in America. There's also another time here in America that provide um, observers in the laboratory to really provide a kind of a halakhic edut that there's there's a, you know, that this egg came from this woman and this sperm came from that man. Um, so that's only one. I think another is is more just the almost cultural comfort with being an inter- interventions in general. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there is this kind of notion of saying, like, I shouldn't mess shouldn't mess with things. Is this somehow, thank God, quote unquote, uh, uh, just a, a cultural Jewish perception, uh, and you know, I think a lot of the organizations that are working in this space have have worked to to, to help people feel more comfortable, feel left alone. There's a lot of um, until very recently, this was not a topic that was discussed in mm-hmm. Orthodox worlds. We were not having shiurim in Orthodox schools about it and discussions there weren't, there wasn't really a place for people to talk about it. And and that made people feel really isolated. Um, And, and to some degree, there is still a lot of that isolation and and shame to some degree, but it's much better now than it ever was.
1: Right. I I think, I think that, that, uh, Mm -hmm. scandal or the, 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 the feeling that there's something salacious about, you know, a couple having facility treatment. I think a lot of that has, has disappeared, uh, over the years, thankfully. Um, I think moving on, so we, we've talked about how you know IVF and fertility treatment and that sort of thing is is a fairly uh, fresh field. Um, but talking about something else that is again relatively new in in the Jewish uh, Jewish zeitgeist, that of the Yotzah Halacha um, and the work being done by by Nishmat, uh, for which you serve as the director of the medical curriculum. Um, the when you're advising, so uh, can you talk to us a bit about about sort of the the work you're doing with Nishmat, um, yeah, of the, and, and sort of how that relationship came about first of all, and sort of what it looks like today.
0: Yeah, so I mean, it came about. Uh, um, Atar Ice, who is the director of the Nishmat program outside the US, at Pelopha training program outside of the United States, is a very good friend of mine. She and I were actually chavuto when we were in seminary together um, many years ago. Uh, and we have stayed together ever since. Uh, and she has many times tried to convince me to do the OSH Halakha program, um, you know, in my... two of us have collaborated on so many things that, and had had so many discussions about the interception of um, and medicine and reproductive medicine that she had come to me with so many questions that there was a clear uh, sort of obvious partnership here that as we train the next generation of USO how important it was for them to have a really good fa- fundamental understanding of the reproductive system from a biological standpoint and an understanding of, you know, when a, pa- when a woman goes to the doctor, like, what's the doctor doing? Why is the doctor doing that? What are some of the things that come up in a general... GYN office, that could be problematic. If the U.S. has never seen those things or never heard of them, it makes it very hard for her to be able to answer a question related to how it might impact um, Hukot Nida. So our goal was to be able to empower the U.S. to learn a lot more outside of the the Dapin that they're learning and the Halakot that they're learning to be able to really understand the reality of the, the Um, women who are coming to them with questions. Our medical curriculum has been very successful uh, for the classes of USO that have graduated since we instituted it. Uh, We instituted it now maybe four, five years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, And in addition, I also serve as a resource to the USO out in the field, to the program in general, so they, they can come to me with individual questions that they find challenging, um, or they want a better understanding of the medicine that, that's happening behind the scenes. Um, or we talk about curriculum things, what are some, you know, as medicine changes, as options change and cultures change, you know, what are some of the things that we're going to need to add curriculum-wise? Um, are there trends, you know, are there broad halakhic trends that we need to discuss that could be informed by medical knowledge? And I can
1: serve as a resource for that as well. So on paper, the, the U.S. Halacha program is is something fantastic that if a woman or a couple have a question um, to speak to someone who is, you know, intimately familiar with with issues of of Nidda, it's not their access to it or their, their knowledge of it doesn't come primarily off of a, a page of Gemara um, or the Shulchan Aruch um, or, or whatever, um, which isn't to be disparaging of, of you know, generations of uh, Poskim and, and Rabbanim. Uh, who come before us? Um, I, mean, what are some of the reasons why there have been uh, there's been some reticence um, to accept the Oqa um, as as a resource?
0: You yeah, know, I think any any change to tradition is going to take a long for a time for there to be an ad- adoption of it. I think we're seeing lots of success in terms of adoption of the USA Halakha program. I think those who utilize it feel very positive about their utilization. I'd like to believe that there's people who otherwise wouldn't have engaged with asking halakha questions who are now doing that. I think some of this just takes time, and there are communities that have really, um, you know, accepted the OFF program with open arms. Uh, and then there are, you know, there are just sort of logistical things that are, that are challenging and... Uh, it to speak a, a little bit about kind of the role of having, um, like the medical education. I would love it if every semikhah program in the world had a medical curriculum too. You know, I don't think that this necessarily this concept necessarily needs to be limited to a to a, a program. Um, and look, I have many rabbanim from all walks of life who call me. I have you know chasidish dayanim who call me too for questions. So. There, I think there is an understanding that when you're talking about comida, especially when you talk about complicated medical procedures, you actually have to understand the reality of what's happening. Right. Um, And that's something that I think Kalakha has been struggling with forever. You know, the, the female reproductive system is complicated and it's not always obvious what's happening from the outside. I mean, like Dakyomi, now we're learning to vote and there's all sorts of discussions about female anatomy and female physiology that we're Observed, but you know, there's no way to really, you know, without the kind of medical knowledge we have now, you make assumptions based on the observations that you have. Um, and when we have better understandings, that informs our holistic understandings too. So I think good post also feel that way, right? They want to understand really what's happening. You know, oh, you said you went to the doctor and the doctor did this. Like, what exactly did the doctor do? The patient doesn't always know. Right. So having somebody they can speak to is, is very useful. So I, I think that's um, uh, a disposition that's happening elsewhere. Also recognizing that as things become more complicated, there's a knowledge base that
1: needs to be acquired. I mean, so, so you said that you know it would be fantastic if every smicha program uh, had some sort of medical uh, consultation element to it, um, and that you're receiving questions from across the spectrum um, about. But seeking your 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 medical expertise um, when it comes to sort of them they're making their like decisions. So I guess sort of as a uh, a practicing um, medic um, and a practicing Jew, what what do you need? As in, what if it were up to you? If you were designing, you were designing your smicha program or you're designing uh, whatever protocol it is uh, to make sure that everyone has access to if nothing else the answers to the questions that they have um what are the things that, that you think need to be put in place in every community all over the world it's an easy question uh, um, you know.
0: she, she just need a lot of people like me to replicate <laughs>
1: <laughs> where are we with cloning um, look
0: i'm not, thank god i'm not the only um orthodox reproductive specialist you know in, i can't i in, when i was in medical school there weren't any Female Orthodox reproductive endocrinologist, at least in the United States, that I could look up to for um, for guidance, um, and that was one of the reasons I actually like very felt, felt very motivated to pursue this line of of um, career was to kind of become that and do the things that I do now, like to be able to be that resource for people in the community. And thank God there are many other women who have come up the ranks behind me. Um, and I think there are certainly some in, some in Israel, there are some around the world, there are certainly many male reproductive endocrinologists who have a lot of knowledge of the medicine and the halakha, potentially more than I do. So there are those, they are available, and I think there's, um, you know, if there's a, a desire to incorporate some of that knowledge and that access, um, I think there are, there are resources in our community that we can, we can tap into Many have tried, you know, many are really working to do that, particularly those organizations that work very closely with couples who are seeking infertility care. It just becomes so complex that you really do need to have a good understanding um, of the medicine and access to people you can ask questions to. Um, and, you know, the curriculum that we, that Atara and I developed for the USO, it was meant to really be that, like to be the foundation of a knowledge base that the Yoetso know, can start with and then be able to ask questions from, because sometimes you don't know what to you don't know what you don't know. If you don't, you don't know how to ask the question if you don't have the foundation of the knowledge. So, you know, we start, the way we developed our curriculum, we start with um, essentially, it, I give lectures approximately once a month, um, they are, you know, a very cursory coverage of anatomy, normal anatomy and physiology. We talk about um, the female reproductive system, the male reproductive system, the menstrual cycle. We talk about pregnancy, um, delivery. Uh, we talk about menopause. So, kind of a lot of the basic anatomy and physiology that would be helpful to us. So, and as I'm doing this. You know, I've done this long enough that I can highlight things and use anecdotes of stories that have come through in which these information is useful. We then go back and start from the beginning and uh, go back through the same topics, but we talk about all the um, abnormalities that can happen. So the pathology um, and the anatomical pathology that can happen from the reproductive system, menstrual disturbances, um, complications of pregnancy, infertility, um, problems with menopause, postmenopausal bleeding, and those are things also that come to the to the OSF. uh And the focus of my discussions with them is, you know, what are things you need to make sure to tell somebody to see a doctor for. So it's both making sure they're getting the halakhic background, but also if someone says, "Oh, you know, like this weird thing's been happening to me," I want them to have like enough of a red flag to say, "You really should see a doctor about that." Right. Um, so we have discussions about you know, like I said, post bleeding, we have discussions about um, postpartum depression, for example, right? So you also get questions that come to them about postpartum bleeding that may have nothing to do with the emotional state of a woman in her postpartum care, but they're getting access to that and they have an opportunity to intervene if there's something going on. And that can be life altering and having nothing to do with halakha necessarily. So we make sure we have a lecture on postpartum depression. Um, so those are those are the that's the foundation. Um, it's pro, It's not sufficient in it in and of itself. It needs to be constant. It needs to be a constant um, curiosity to be able to keep researching more, learning more, asking more questions, having a resource to whom you can ask questions because the medicine is constantly changing. <laughs> uh, so there's always new things to know.
1: Right. Um. And- so you mentioned how you're able to bring in your own sort of anecdotal, um, je ne sais quoi, <laughs> to your lectures, um, and that, you know doctors often have the best stories. Um, so <laughs> if I can ask, you know, what what's one or two of, of sort of your your favourite stories to to bring up, whether it's just you know purely from your from your professional your medical sort of experience, or even something a, a particularly interesting sort of halakhic situation you were asked to uh, consult on that you're, you're able to share?
0: I mean, I think of a, I, I, there's a few things I can think of. Um, there's a, there's this term halakhic infertility, which we didn't really touch upon, but it comes up, I get a, a discussions about it a lot mm-hmm. where women are ovulating prior to the mix. Right. It raises a whole bunch of questions, both halakhic questions, astrophic questions, emotional issues, right. Women who feel like, or couples who feel like the one thing that's holding them back from getting pregnant is their adherence, very complicated. Um, but what has become clear to me and to many professionals, and, and I'm not the only one who's written papers about this, um, is that having a short menstrual cycle such that you ovulate before the mikvah, many times, but not always, um, can actually be a sign of something more significant. Um, and so we do see a fair amount of the time that, women who come in telling me they have short cycles, their cycles are 21, 22, 23 days, so that they're ending up, they're ovulating on day nine or 10. Sometimes that's a sign of what we call diminished ovarian reserve, that their egg supply is is decreasing. Mm -hmm. And it has to do with the fact that as the egg supply decreases, the communication between the brain and the ovary sort of ramps up in, in an attempt to get eggs to grow each month. And so it gets stronger and that actually shortens the cycle and and kind of makes it a little over eager to ovulate um and so sometimes i get women who come to my office because they think they have a halakhic problem and it turns out that actually as a result of this we can uncover what is actually a more significant medical problem um and the treatments are somewhat different and if i have a young couple who see who see me who has and she had significant diminished ovarian reserve, which is rare. So I don't want to like scare our listeners that this is something they need to worry about. It's very rare. It's very uncommon. But when I do see it, it can be very, a very complex diagnosis for a young Orthodox couple who's hoping to have a lot of children. Because while diminished ovarian reserve might not necessarily cause infertility in a young age, it can decrease the chances of, of overall having a large family with time because the egg supply will just continue to diminish. So I actually, the, the the thought, the one that's coming to mind, is actually I have several couples in this circumstance where they came to me really for halakhic infertility thinking that it was a relatively easy fix. We do some oral medications and delay ovulation and, and they get pregnant and move on with their lives. And we actually uncovered a more significant problem that they, they may not have realized. And through that, that allowed them to think about the possibility of what we call fertility preservation. So, they were actually able to create embryos, freeze those embryos, and save them for the future, so that they then went on to have, you know, I have couples who are now back with their, you know, third or fourth child that they may not have otherwise had, and it all started with a question about, about lymphoedia. So, and that's a, maybe an extreme example, and certainly not one that comes up all the time, but a really good example of how, the like intersection of Halakha and an understanding of both the medicine and kind of the cultural background that the Orthodox couples are coming to can actually allow us to to pr- create like this very rich and full reproductive life for this couple that might, may not have otherwise had it. Um, so I I always like, I think that's a good example.
1: Yeah. I, I think it's, I mean, we touched upon it earlier and I, we didn't sort of dwell on it too long and, you know, perhaps that that's, uh, that's my fault, but I think you know the conversations around fertility and infertility, and the conversations around um, you know these questions we often think as being either medical questions that end up being halachic questions or halachic questions that are being medical questions, and this sort of thing. Um, but as, as you said before, it's a, it's a conversation that is starting to um, uh, gather more participants. Um, you know whether they be poskim as rabbis or yuatzot, whether it's Teachers, uh, people who you know are learning uh, with brides and grooms before before they get married, um, and sort of them having a even a, a vague awareness of some of the medical issues uh, involved, I think is, is something that is um, only going to benefit. Uh, I, I mean, the Jewish people as a whole. As in, we're, we're literally talking about the future of the Jewish people and, and being able to. to yeah, uh, as, as I mean,
0: my what, what breaks my heart is when someone comes to me and is like, I just always thought this was normal, or no one ever told me I needed to be worried about X, Y, Z, or I figured everybody else is experiencing the same thing. So I never brought it up, right? So that's, and that, that's a missed opportunity. We as a community missed the opportunity to educate our, our young people about what, you know, what are some of the red flags or somebody to educate our educators about when to to identify red flags so that we can intervene because, well, it's scary getting a diagnosis and undergoing interventions, especially for a young couple where this might be their very first sort of crisis as a couple, is a scary prospect. Um, But when we sort of zoom out, it's exactly that. It's an intervention, an opportunity to intervene early To preserve hopefully the longevity and the um,
1: you know the size of the future of the Jewish people. I mean, this is perhaps more a hashkafic, a philosophical question than it is a halachic one. But when I I suppose for you as someone who's so involved in like the training of the halachic guides and someone who is there treating the the patients. and as an Orthodox to yourself, <laughs> so I think you have, you have a broad perspective. So I mean, I think you're, you're definitely the right person to ask when, when do these conversations, when should these conversations begin? You know, should we be going into our middle schools or our high schools and, and saying to the, the young boys and girls, you know, this is what quote unquote normal is. And if you don't fall within that normal, again, in, in air quotes, if you don't fall within sort of what yeah. is medically normal, um, you know, you should speak to such and such a person, a doctor, a rabbi, a ueta, or is it perhaps we should be leaving it for later in, in life, you know, when when people are, are dating or it should be part of the conversation?
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it dep- obviously depends. Communities are going to be different. Like what's going to be happening in, you know, in Borough Park is going to be very different than what might be happening in the frat, right? So, um, so it's going to be different from a community standpoint, but certainly I think it can be multi-pronged. Um, And I think we are doing that almost sort of a grassroots effort um, in different communities. So, yes, I think our young people should be more educated about their bodies and what that what that looks like might be different from different communities. Um, I've been involved in some um, programming where we're speaking to girls in middle schools and high schools about Know, obviously age appropriate mm-hmm. um, discussions about body development and, and, and menstrual cycles and that kind of thing. And there have been counterpart discussions for boys, obviously um, I think that's important for a lot of reasons. <laughs> uh, I think that we can have, you know, more appropriate sexual education of our young people, whether that's happening in high school, whether that's happening post high school, whether it's happening in Khatan and pala classes, You know, there's the the important halakhic aspects and then there's the important sort of physiology, medical aspects, biological aspects that can be improved certainly. And there are lots of organizations and grassroots efforts that are working on that too. And then I think broadly in our communities, we can open up conversations and engage with difficult topics. So, you know, having, for example, in my community, I live in Riverdale, a few months ago, maybe last year, we had a, uh, a panel on Shabbat that included two women in our community who had had babies um, via gestational carrier, So somebody else carried their genetic offspring. We had Mordechai uh, Willig from YU, who has a food um, show in our community, speaking sort of the halakhic aspect of it. We had our Yo- Riverdale Yo participate in the panel as well. So these kinds of conversations, first of all, never would have happened even a few years ago, but they allow um, an opening and engagement with the community. So while only a small percentage of the community might ever need some of these services, it one creates awareness. So people know what's out there so that if they or somebody they know might need these kinds of services, they can say, hey. This is not necessarily any unacceptable off the bat. Like, I've heard this panel or I've heard this discussion, like, I know a little bit about it. It also creates a comfort. Like, if I'm that person who needs to utilize a gestational carrier to grow my family, I can feel comfortable that the people in my community know what that means and they're going to be accepting of my child and my, you know, all of those worries that come along with it to be able to feel open and welcome in, in their community. Is extraordinarily valuable and there are lots of people who are working very hard at that as well um and then our leaders to be able to make sure that our leaders are well educated so that when someone comes to them to say i'm having xyz medical problem that they either are humble enough to say i'm not really sure what that is or what the implications are let me go find out more and know where to go or they know the answer and they're not dismissive of it because that's the easiest way to isolate somebody from asking additional, future questions and engaging with the community more is to make them feel like um, their issue is, is dismissed. So there's a lot of work to be done and I think a lot of work that has been done and is being done. Um, publications like Nishman Abayit actually are part of that, right? Being able to have resources and text and places that people, that the, you know, a, a regular person can go to say, oh, I want to learn more about this, even if it doesn't affect me personally, um, is extraordinarily valuable.
1: Right. And I, I, you, you mentioned Nishma Habayat, which I think is, is potentially one of the more, if not most important books that have been published by Mugged Books, certainly in recent years, um, having just come out in English, as that resource, as whether it's, somebody who is themselves a halachic decisor, a rabbi Yoetzeh, whatever, um, just having a resource to, to flip through to see is this question addressed in this book, but also, you know, the the layperson, you know, everyone uh, to have it on their shelf and, and to, uh, if nothing else, be a part of the conversation um, that's, that's going on. Uh, something that sort of may not make the edit because I need to consult with, uh, with my wife, but, you know, this is uh you know, this is something that we a conversation we we went through I, we didn't have the the simplest nor the most complicated um story of of starting our family um and thank god we have three beautiful children um but again just sort of as as you said being a, being able to sort of have that conversation of you know is i thought it was normal or being able to ask, you know, knowing what question to ask or or knowing who who to go to um, is not so obvious and, and has always sort of traditionally been um, taboo and, and we don't talk about it. And, you know, there are whispers uh, at the Shabbos table um, about, oh, did you hear about them next door? And, and, and uh, you know, they're expecting a child, but she's not carrying it. And that sort of thing. And, and those things becoming less and less scandalous, I think, is is uh, really a fantastic.
0: Yeah. I think really to move away from. Of the us versus them mentality there's like those of us that like we're able to have our children fine and them that like need help and mm-hmm. you know that 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 mentality i think is thank god breaking down to being like this is you know we're a community we're all in this together we as a community should be invested in helping our community members have the families we desire um and there's really you know, each community I have I have views into lots of different types of communities because I I get like these peaks as a physician. And I think, you know, certainly the Hasidic communities have their own challenges. Um there's a lot of you know, there's a lot of stigma that that is, is certainly built into that community. Um, but to their credit, organizations like Bone Olam, for example, which is very well-established here in America, I think is is starting to become more, a little more established in, in Israel as well. Um, you know, in Israel, there's a lot of financial support for these these treatments. In America, you know, one of the biggest, if not the biggest challenge is the finances of it mm-hmm. all. Um, and one of, you know, from, if you, again, zoom out and look at sort of it from a historical perspective, you know, whether we agree or disagree with the community, the community approach, Boney Olam has created this, like, Sort of sign in the sand that we, as the Jewish community, value growing our families so much, so that we are going to take communal funds to allow others to grow their families. Um, and I think that's a very beautiful thing. And I think that's something that that notion is really starting to spread through lots of other communities. That it's important to us that those who are struggling feel that it, it's our struggle too. Right? We are here to really be able to grow. As, as a community rather than it's just individ- isolated individuals who happen to all live in the same
1: neighborhood. so i think with that you know with, with that more positive message of of the community you know taking taking this seriously um i think will allow you to to go back to changing people's lives uh and, and <laughs> you know. you <laughs> um, <laughs> i want to thank you again for, for giving us your time um dr maslow uh, it's been certainly for me a really uh fascinating conversation um and inspiring as well um and so thank you for your time um and to our listeners if they have questions whether they be about what what we've just spoken about um or you know otherwise related um we'll put some links to some organizations and some different uh, resources that might be useful uh in the show notes um but just, yeah, you know, just one more time, um, a huge, huge thank you to uh, Dr. Batsheva Maslow um, for, for everything you've given us today. Thank you
0: so much for having me. I really appreciate it.
1: That's all we've got time for this week. Uh, thank you so much for joining us and thank you again to Dr. Maslow. It really was a fascinating conversation for me and I, I do hope you enjoy it. Again, um, there is a list in the show notes um, of organisations uh, who might be of use uh, as a resource for people with questions who may have been affected by things mentioned in this podcast. Um, so please do take a look. Um, if you'd like to reach out to us, you can do so by email, podcast at karenpub.com. Um, you can find us on social media at Karen Publishers. Uh, we mentioned Nishma'a Habai, uh, the new edition in English that came out earlier this year from Mugged Books. That's available from karenpub.com. And as always, you can get 10% off your order uh, with promo code podcast Um, at checkout. Please make sure to uh, like, rate, review, subscribe wherever you're listening uh, and tell your friends about the fantastic Karin podcast wherever you listen. Uh, As you may have seen, we've just entered our third year of the Karin podcast. Uh, We have 150,000 plus uh, downloads. We've topped the Apple charts uh, and we are excited only to continue growing uh, into our third year. So thank you to all of you for your support over the last two years um, and for your continued support. And so until next time, goodbye.